0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Lily Spencer. I'm co-director of Australia Remade, and I am super excited to introduce today's guests, two amazing women from one of the most inspiring, incredible organizations really on the planet right now, and that is We All, which is the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. WEALL was co-founded by Dr. Catherine Trebek, who we have had on the podcast earlier this season. She is absolutely one of our favorite people. And I've been learning so much from these guys that I really wanted to bring you more of their voices. And these are two people really senior in their leadership um, team that you are gonna fall in love with. So they are Lisa House stewart and Amanda Janu. Um, now Lisa is the implementation lead. So it's really her role to help people implement well-being economy ideas into practice, particularly policy Um, in and around the European region. She's based in Scotland and is very active with their Scottish hub. Um, And she's been with me all since the beginning. So she tells a great story there about how that all came to be. Um, And then Amanda, Amanda Janu is their economic policy expert. She has more than a decade of experience working with governments and international development institutions all around the world, the United Nations, the African Development Bank. She's been a Fulbright researcher and She lives in one of my favorite places on earth in Vermont. So, um, this whole conversation is really about how do we produce and provide for each other? What does that look like now? What is that system designed to deliver? And what would it look like, what does it look like to be in the midst of a paradigm shift? Changing our goals from kind of mere growth and profits for a few, to actually supporting and driving well-being for people and planet. And I think like any paradigm shift, when you're still in it, when you're still in the midst of it, particularly somewhat early on, it can all feel like change is you know never really gonna happen, um, that there are these foundational assumptions that we can't question and that people trying to are, are dreamers. But history has a way of proving the dreamers right, or as uh, the historian Rudger Bregman says, you know, utopias have a way of coming true, and we don't have to look very far back into our history to see ideas that were once taken as gospel be completely transformed. I really hope that our children look at the way that we produce and provide for each other and scratch their heads a little bit, you know, and, and how did it take you so long to figure out? some better ways of doing things and if they do it will be because of people like Lisa and Amanda. So without further ado, I give you the wonderful Lisa House Stewart and Amanda Janu. Okay, Amanda and Lisa, welcome to the Remakers podcast. It is an utter delight to be having this conversation, and there is a giant grin on my face. I don't think I'm going to be able to wipe off for the course of the next 45 minutes. I was wondering, now we've given people a little bit of an introduction to you both and to we all, which is such a cool thing, but I would like to hear it from you. Can you please give us just a little bit of a high-level introduction to how you came to be doing this work? and what We All is. Amanda, let's start with
1: you. Ooh, well, Lisa, do you want to start? Because you've been there pretty much since the beginning. So I think, you know, around the origin stories and I can that's true. Actually. Yeah, chip in as well.
2: We can go chronologically. Sure. Yes. Yeah, so um, We All was set up in summer 2018 as an organization um, and I was part of that team that helped to set it up and um, so I have been there since the beginning um but there was lots of work going on before that um the sort of pre-origin story of we all and I was adjacent to that because I was working with Australia's greatest export Catherine Trebek um when she was here <laughs> at, um, at Oxfam so my quickly uh, my sort of career trajectory was that I worked in private sector sustainability like focused on on human rights and really trying to change the system from the inside within a couple of private sector companies here in Scotland, but still always kind of felt I was on the wrong side of the table being in corporate land. Um, so I left to go work for Oxfam Scotland, uh, where I was working on campaigns um, on climate change, women's rights, inequality, refugee rights. Uh, but that's where I was working closely with Catherine because she was also at Oxfam and she was at Oxfam working on human economy and wellbeing economy ideas and. It was just this light bulb moment hearing her speak about this and it connected all of those other issues that I was working on and that I care about that actually pointing at the economic system um, and making those connections between all of these things and not treating them as separate problems to be solved. It gave me so much hope and energy um, and I worked with her on that while she was with it and as much as possible. And one day she came over to my desk and said, there's funding for an organisation for this wellbeing economy thing. Do you want to do it with me? <laughs> so that was... How I found my way to We All is all Catherine's fault.
0: <laughs> it is all Catherine's fault. We've, we've had her on the podcast and she's just amazing, brilliant and and lovely. Um, Amanda, how about you?
1: Uh, well, since you've all heard from Catherine, I must say, similarly, Catherine is the reason I joined We All as well. But I came into We All in 2020. And for me, it's really been like a dream job and ex- just the kind of perfect pinnacle of of my meandering kind of career trying to transform economic thinking and policy and work. So I developed pretty early on kind of a love-hate relationship with economics um, where I felt like the economy was really core to so many of our issues, but also if you could change it could really be a huge source of the solution as well, but didn't find in economics a lot of avenues for that transformation because it's really presented a lot of the time as if it's, you know this self-regulating autonomous force out there and that's super disempowering um and so for me a lot of my work was an in industrial policy and structural transformation sort of policy because it was in the anti-neoliberal kind of space so I worked for the UN for quite a long time and ended up connecting with Kate Rayworth and Catherine at a Club of Rome event mm-hmm. um in Austria and staying in contact. And eventually there was this knowledge and policy lead position and Catherine reached out and it's just been, yeah, it's been wonderful to be a part of the space and engage.
0: Oh, that's so cool. I love that Catherine is is the kind of thread that that binds us together as well. Um, so the Wellbeing Economy Alliance describes itself as a leading collaboration of organizations, alliances, movements, and individuals working towards a well-being economy, delivering human and ecological well-being. What does a well-being economy mean to each of you? Because I think it's a term that kind of sounds lovely, but people don't necessarily know how to pin it down or say what it is and what it isn't. Whoever wants to go first on that one, Lisa? Yeah. <laughs> she's appointed she's like, no, Amanda can take that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, so first of all, I think for me, a well being economy starts with recognizing that the economy is just the way we produce and provide for one another. It's like a process, a means, a method by which we interact with one another in our natural environment. And it's always should be evaluated by how much it contributes to our collective well being, right? But the issue is that it hasn't been. It's been evaluated by how much, how quickly it grows how many things we make, how much profit is generated, right? And so those are those are maybe in some realms viewed as drivers, right, of well-being or like, you know, potential conditions for, but they're not goals in their own, right. And so I think a well-being economy is about really being clear on on what we're genuinely trying to achieve as yeah a humanity on this planet. Um, and then designing and evaluating our economies accordingly.
2: sorry yeah i wanted amanda to go first because i always love how she speaks about this and copy her language on it sometimes um and i think for me a really key word is, is the word design that we designed this economic system and we can design it differently and a well-being economy means an economic system designed to deliver well-being and then that looks like being biased towards activities and behaviors that are good for the planet, good for health, good for collective well-being, because at the moment we don't have a benign neutral economic system. We've got one that's biased towards activities that generate the most growth and and the most wealth for particular groups. So we've got these tools and instruments within the economy that we can play with because we designed it. So I think that makes me feel quite hopeful that the economy doesn't exist separate from us. It's ours to change.
0: Yeah, you guys have already touched on like so many core ideas of like the economy is not some autonomous thing that exists out there in the ether separate to our other things that we care about. It is a human created construct. And if if humans made it, humans can change it. And it's been designed to buy certain things and ignore others. And actually, we get to tweak this like we get to evolve this thing to work for us. Um, Lisa, you said to me in an earlier conversation that, you know, you're in Scotland where things are a lot more advanced, right? Than what we've got here in Australia in terms of a wellbeing economy, general discourse or political debate. And you told me that in some places, wellbeing is kind of like the new sustainability. And so there's a lot of like wellbeing washing going on. So just off the top for the skeptics out there who are like, it's just another buzz term, it's just another trend. How do you separate? well-being washing from the the genuine stuff how do we know if we're on the right track versus just using lots of pretty words
2: yes so i mean it's usually quite easy to spot well-being washing because it comes in the the next breath after talking about the need for economic growth (laughs) like that all right okay (laughs) um and um actually we need to change our whole relationship with growth, we need to be talking about growth in service of well-being. At the well-being economy lines, we're not anti-growth, um, but we want to be questioning the purpose of growth and what is growing and who's benefiting from that. So that's that's my sort of easy test to spot a lot of what I would call well-being washing. But actually, the the proof of the pudding of whether it's meaningful or not, work on the well-being economy is in the how it's in the way that people are approaching this work and showing up and what are the actions and what are the behaviours. Because a well-being economy is about collaboration. It's about being humble and not being driven by egos and competition. Um, it's about being agnostic about growth, as I said, and not being driven by self-interest. So if you look at the how, at the processes, at the the conversations, at the way that things are happening, not just the what of what's being said, mm-hmm. it's usually quite easy to tell if if it's what we would determine uh, to be like genuine well-being economy activity or, or ambition or progress.
0: Yeah, that's something that I'm learning even in my like new-ish kind of entree into this space is you guys are very much about the process and the how matters just as much as the what or the outcome. And even for campaigners who are used to like just tell me the goal and I'll go and I'll do it and I'll win and I'll like, and it's and you're saying like, well, I don't want to skip to the like here are the top three answers for everyone. I want you to actually go through this process that is bringing people together and discovering together what does well being actually like, what drives our well being, what is important to us. I'm curious how it's going, like in the in the countries that you're working in, but also where you live, like what is going really well? What are people finding hard? Where are you seeing bright spots? Amanda, as like somebody who has the head around kind of the policy lead and progress that's happening in different countries around the world, what sticks out to you in terms of how, how the well-being economy journey is sort of evolving?
1: Mm, well... So disclaimer, I'm definitely an optimist and live in a particular world now because I'm in we all, so I might be sort of biased, but I think it's been phenomenal actually. I couldn't have even imagined um, the kind of transformations and interests in economic systems change. Like when I was graduating from college, all I wanted was a job that was about the economy that wasn't doing econometrics for a specific company, yeah, right? Like I wanted to talk about the actual economy. There was no jobs that looked at that, let alone trying to transform it for like progressive aims. There might be some consumer rights advocacy, maybe a fair trade initiative, but there wasn't really anything looking systemically at the economic system as a whole. And so seeing not only like how many different organizations and initiatives are entering into this space, but also just last week, I was on an event with the UN SDG lab, all on economic systems change. And then like the new UN special repertoire for poverty um, and human rights is really centering like a post-growth paradigm for the next iteration of the SCGs, And like that's the yeah, whole huge. notion of development has been so tied from its pretty much inceptions to notions of economic growth. And so to see this disentangling happening in a lot of honestly, cognitive dissonance that it also creates for folks when we really question some of the fundamental assumptions of what determines progress or what determines our success is beautiful and inspiring, but also painful. It makes people really uncomfortable as well, because it's destabilizing. It's part of this bigger, I think, paradigm shift we're kind of seeing. And so for me, to your point around that sort of process, like why the process matters so much is one, because I think one of the biggest issues with economics is the one size fits all philosophy, right? Like there's no other social science that is like across all space and time. Yeah. Like everybody is this way and the system works like that, but we've keep trying to just find another unifying economic theory as opposed to allowing Mm. for space and context in that journey. And and that's a part of the self-empowerment that I think people are yearning for as well. I mean, I'm in the US, so I will say, I think we're a little bit further behind than some, but um, yeah, I think that there's really exciting glimmers here as well um, of civil society activity of policymakers, I think really starting to recognize that they can't afford to keep going about the sort of standard approach. And so that's leading to some interest as well. Um, but yeah, those are some of my bright spots, but I'll hand it it to you.
0: And I mean, you just also had um, Sophie Howe there in Vermont, who we've also had on the podcast as the Outgoing Future Generations Commissioner of Wales. And that whole story, and for people who haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it, because what Wales has done is really like quite inspiring. I'm curious what lawmakers, and Lisa I do want to come to Scotland in just a sec, but just while we're in the US, which is often held up as this like, oh my God, it's such a dumpster fire, everything's terrible. And you know, and even you know, when we get people in office who are trying to do good things, it seems like the system is just so broken. Then how do they make headway? I'm curious what US lawmakers, whether it's locally or state based or more nationally, like where are their glimmers? What are they interested in?
2: Yeah.
1: So the visit of Sophie Howe brought her and had her speak to our some of our legislators. Um, so, yeah, that's what you would call them also. Yeah. Right? A, yeah. Legislator? yeah. a legislator. Yeah. And so, they laws. Um, yeah, exactly. And it was actually really incredible to sort of see. And Sophie Howe also said from all of her visits here, she felt, yeah, just the most openness and sort of excitement as part of this, again, because it's a process. And I think a big thing, For me, that's important is that Vermont goes through a participatory process of defining well-being, that that needs to be the starting point. And then on that basis, my hope is that we can pass a similar kind of legislation, but also innovate and build upon it as well. Because, you know, speaking with Sophie, but also looking at a lot of the countries, I think one of the big issues is that they still tend to throw the economic, social and environmental all together in one soup of goals or of indicators or whatnot and it creates a lot of conceptual confusion and so I think that like one of the things my dream is is for Vermont is we spend time really clarifying our longer term social and environmental goals and then on that basis build systems to identify the areas of the economy that are positively or negatively contributing to those goals so that they can be more yeah strategically targeted accordingly. I mean, it sounds so logical. Like that
0: just makes so much sense. like, what do you mean? We don't do that already? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I know. But that's so much of the
1: issue is because, you know, the economy has been treated with an aggregate index. So everybody gets caught in the growth debate because it's like they're thinking of the economy as one thing, but it's not, right? Like it's made up of so many different activities and so many things that aren't included in that number as well.
0: And so, you know, yeah. This. Yeah, I could go nerd on yeah. about this for yeah. a while yeah. but no, no. Yeah. it's great <laughs> yeah. and then Lisa by contrast Scotland is held up as this place that is like way further ahead and I know the last time I spoke to you I was like what is in the water in Scotland like how is Scotland nailing this while like the UK in terms of you know Britain has had its own issues with conservatism and all of the austerity, and it just seems like—I mean—I hear horrible stories from friends there about crumbling infrastructure, libraries being closed because there's no funding for libraries in fricking London. And you're like, London has money. Come on. Yeah, um, it it just—and—and and you were talking to me about what has set Scotland apart. So I'm curious, from your perspective, how are things going there?
2: Yeah, what's in the water? I mean, we do have very nice water, which is why we have very nice whiskey um, in Scotland. Um, apart from anything else, but that's not that's definitely not the only reason, but it helps. Um, it contributes your well-being. It's it's good. Yeah, I would I would argue that it's a controversial statement. Um, so yeah, right. But in many ways, the movement internationally does sort of look to Scotland as a as a leader in well-being economy, which is great in and of itself. That there is this level of ambition that our government the Scottish government, which is devolved, we are still part of the UK, but the Scottish government has set out a level of ambition and rhetoric that is worth being proud of and has been part of the Wellbeing Economy Government's partnership and played a real leadership role in that from the beginning. And our former First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was a really um, persuasive champion of wellbeing economy thinking. And she she's done a TED Talk that maybe you can provide a link to oh, if people haven't Definitely Oh, that definitely. Is, that is, a really inspiring articulation of why governments need to prioritise wellbeing. Um, so that's that's one thing is that we have this sort of high level ambition and that's been happening now for a number of years, for like even longer than we all has existed um, for about six or seven years. And within that, we have a national performance framework um, that has wellbeing at its heart. Uh, we now have a minister for wellbeing economy um, as of the last sort of cabinet reshuffle um, and we also have a Minister for Community Wealth Building. I think he might still be the only Minister for that anywhere. Um, wow. and, and there's a Community Wealth Building Bill going through a Parliament as well. Um, so the, there are these legislative shifts and there's a wellbeing monitor, there's a whole wellbeing economy team within the civil service and the Scottish Government. So there are real building blocks in place. Um, and with around all of that, I think there's a real discourse and narrative shift as well. So we've already talked about the risk of well-being washing and i think that happens when you get to a point where the term is so widely used um, and particularly by government that people want to align with it i think that's kind of why i see sometimes that it risks becoming the new sustainability like there is a risk of it becoming a buzzword and a soundbite so i suppose the flip side is um that that risk is very real and that the, the government. Might risk using it to mean all things to all people, because the political reality is not that dissimilar to the rest of the UK. In all honesty, we are devolved and we have some powers. We're still part of the UK, so on on many things, including in a lot of the levers of power that you need to control the economy, we, Scotland does not have power over those things um, at Scottish level. So there's that. Um, but that can also be used as an excuse by the Scottish government. <laughs> sometimes it's genuine, but sometimes it could be used as a bit of a get out clause to like, point upwards and blame the UK for everything. Um, but we also have a change in political landscape. We have um, party lines that are defined along constitutional lines, really. Um, that, that's a more defining landscape for us and whether you're pro or anti-scottish independence is a bit more defining than um than left versus right in scotland which makes us quite different from from other places but um, there was also a risk in well-being economy being too associated with the snp which is the pro-independence party and um, we all in our scottish hub has worked hard to work with policymakers right across the spectrum and we have a cross-party group on well-being economy that has members from all the different parties and there certainly are cases to be made for a well-being economy from lots of different lenses but there are still these risks around it and the final thing I'd say is that most people in Scotland that are part of our network and that are working towards a well-being economy are pretty frustrated with the government for what we would call the implementation gap and that this rhetoric and everything is great but that we want to see more substantive progress, and we want to see more bold steps towards transformation away from the status quo. Um, so we've ta- we've certainly taken a lot of the really important steps towards it, but it, you can't. I, I'm not living in a well-being economy utopia here in Glasgow today. It's um, there. We still have a lot of inequality. But there's a of high levels of poverty here. There's um, we haven't we haven't solved all these things, and I, and I do have some worries. Um, that some of those risks that I just talked about mean that we might backslide um, on that progress at um, any minute. I really hope not. Um, and the movement, both within government and in civil society and with businesses and stuff, is is really growing around wellbeing economy all the time in Scotland. So there's more reasons to be hopeful than fearful. But we're not there yet.
0: I mean, yeah. At least I guess you've got when you say you have a minister for wellbeing economy and for community wealth building. I think wow, there's been at least a level of buy-in and acknowledgement that like these are things to aim at and maybe that is still more aspirational than, you know, manifesting in the transformations that, you know, nothing is ever a final destination. It's always that process and that journey. I'm curious about the politics. And from your perspective, does this, how do we avoid this being a left versus right issue? Like how, how are you seeing people come together? Or how do you avoid those kind of political pitfalls that it doesn't just become another kind of because you know, I think that there's so much power in economics. And I always think back to Bill Clinton had this economic advisor, James Carville, who, you know, his quote was, it's the economy, stupid. And this idea, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, like if we have our, our basic needs, if we feel secure, if we feel optimistic that we can provide for ourselves and our family and have the, the basics of a good life, like we feel more optimistic and in control in, in our lives and more optimistic about the world and the future. And I think it is this really powerful, core thing and like has all this potential at a time when the world feels like democracy is under pressure and people are you know in the UK you had Brexit in the US we had Trump like you know we had all the people buying into all the conspiracy theories especially during COVID and so it's like to me the well-being economy seems like it could be this really powerful kind of galvanizing like we can turn this ship around and we can create an economy that like delivers for us and the things that we actually care about but i'm worried that it just gets sidelined as like a lefty utopian fantasy rather than something that like conservative people can buy into as well has that been your experience or do you feel like actually there are people coming at this from all different kinds of politics
1: um so the thing that comes to mind first of all which i think is important to say around that quote, it's the economy stupid, is that I think there's something really insightful about what you were saying around the power that that term holds within our public discourse. like how central it seems to be. And I think your point is around voting behavior and people's sense of security, et cetera. And of course, there's a reality there because, you know, ensuring our material needs, right? Like our basic comforts. That has huge implications for our anxiety and our level of social connection, our sense of purpose, etc. Right, but the term economy itself actually didn't enter into the public discourse until the Great Depression, and after the Great Depression, right. So if you had talked to people even 100 years ago and said the term economy, they wouldn't have had any idea what you we were talking about. Yeah, and so it was it was a reaction to a really devastating situation that people couldn't make. Like they saw that there was huge amounts of unemployment and poverty and, you know, hunger and these sort of things. But at that time, they also then developed this number GDP and having that, well, GNP at the time, right? But having that as like an indicator to be able to assess if they were, if things were getting better. And then at the same time, sort of this merged with that sort of Keynesian focus on employment, obviously, because there was so much unemployment and then stock market values, because obviously the stock market was a big, was the major reason for the Great Depression, and what's interesting is now looking a hundred years later, we're still using those three indicators whenever we talk about the economy, right? And because that was the context of that moment in time, but the crises we face now are different, and so and the anxiety we're feeling is around different things. So the eco anxiety is very real, and you know, and people's sense of loneliness and isolation the mental health crisis. There's a lot of other things that I think are really destabilizing. And so for us, I think our role is to help to reshape the economic sort of discourse in a way that actually aligns with the things that are genuinely the most concerning and pressing. And some of that is material, but I think that there's a lot of other aspects that people care about now.
2: Yeah, that was also well put. And to just add to that, um, I think what we've found in the last few years is that if you do look at the left-right spectrum, which isn't helpful, I'd love for us to be able to bust out of that and get beyond it, don't stop. But if you are looking at those sort of traditional values that are small C conservative, there's a lot of that in what we mean when we talk about a well-being economy, about local economies, um, about people sort of living where, where they are and um getting back to basics about what matters to people. And we have had um, right-wing politicians in different countries who are really interested and curious usually coming in from that angle. Um, and and that's that's happening in a few places. The other thing worth mentioning um is that we put out a paper done by fantastic researchers um a few months ago. Again, we'll give the link to you, Lily, so you can send it about the well-being reflex that looks at how the countries that have well-being frameworks in place actually had better outcomes across a whole bunch of different um policy areas, COVID, and we had researchers um, looking at New Zealand, Finland and Bhutan, amazing academics in those places, um, making a really clear case that um, New Zealand, Finland and Bhutan ended up with better economic outcomes in the sort of, Traditional growth terms, um, because they made well-being-led decisions quickly um, when when the pandemic happened. So having wellbeing frameworks in place actually set those places up to be able to cope with the pandemic in ways that were less harmful for their population as a whole. Um, and I think that's really that's a really powerful example. And um, the pandemic has been really significant, even though lots of things are going back to what was the norm before i think it really has people in general and policy makers questioning what matters in life and what success looks like and what our relationship with work is which is really really central to any conversation about the economy um so i think just the fact that, that a lot more people are asking questions like that now um opens the door to um to these conversations about well-being and the purpose of the economy and and what the economy is actually for um but the last thing to say on this question of like left versus right is the reason why we called the organization we all and we actually came up with the we all like acronym and then like found the word alliance to make that work um even though well-being economy was always there is because it's like standing in in opposition to us versus them it's like it can't be us versus them it's got to be all of us it's got to be about the collective And um, so we talk we call ourselves we all a lot more than we say the Wellbeing economy alliance because um, that those words matter um and there's no denying that vested interests built the current economic system and they want to see it survive but that doesn't mean that we should focus on them or make our work be about being against them um and actually we need to be talking about a just transition to a new economic system. There's a lot of talk about just transition in the energy sector, for example, or in other specific sectors. But what we really need is conversations about a just transition to a new economic system that also look at people who might stand to lose things in that transition. And, and how do you take them with you? How do you build bridges? It's not about um, destroying anybody or being against anybody. Ah, oh, I love
0: that so much. Um, And 100%. COVID changed. We had a conservative government in Australia at the time, and the discourse changed on a dime. It went from debt and deficits to lives and livelihoods. We doubled the rate of unemployment overnight and introduced other social safety nets to help keep people in work. And yeah it was like oh turns out we can like just end poverty like oh okay <laughs> wow <that> amazing magic <laughs> yeah and, and and of course there's that long tail of people being like well you know did that did that lead to inflation or how do how are we going to pay back that debt like you still have the you know the wider debate once the crisis passed but there was this you know faith in government in australia went back up after having been kind of slowly on the decline because there was this sense of like oh okay this is a moment of feeling like government's really delivering and looking out for us and we're on this There, And yes, there were people who were mad about things and, you know, not everyone wanted to mask or isolate or do, but it was, it, it was a really powerful paradigm shift. I think that, and then for people who have been able to change their lives and their work and their, you know, throughout this experience of questioning, like what matters, but, Look, I, I am so loving this conversation and inspired by everything that you're saying. What are the things inspiring you? What are the big successes around the world? Is there a particular, I mean, we've talked about Scotland, we've talked about, you know, the US a little bit and Vermont in particular, we've mentioned Wales, but like, whether it's big picture successes, like things happening at the EU, or whether it's particular communities, you know, cities or even companies Like, what are the stories that just make you think, my gosh, like we actually can do this? Is there anything that kind of jumps out at
1: you? I mean, one of the things that maybe I just wanted to share back to the point that was being made earlier too, when you're talking about sort of the the left-right is, at least in the United States, some of the left-right is really centered in bigger government or smaller government. Yeah, like that's sort of the spectrum. And it's been interesting working more in the U S because people really don't have any faith in government and that's on both the left and right. Yeah. So, and so at least national government. And I think one of the things that is helpful about the well-being economy is that it's, it's a third option. It's not just about like traditional, like big state socialism that like, grows the economy and then redistributes it back or, you know, small state capitalism. Let's just like go ahead and let's just see what happens. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> you know, it's like a, it's a more strategic. It's it's about having there is an important role of government or the role of policy, right, in setting those rules and boundaries and and directing the economy, but also preventing the need for so much expenditure after the fact as well. And so I've found, at least in the U.S., that like there are. More conservative think tanks that actually I think think more in line with what we would articulate as a well being economy sort of strategy in Europe mm-hmm. and stuff like That's that. Because it is looking, yeah. yeah, it's looking at more of the like, how do we actually, yeah, get the, as Catherine said, get the economy to do more of the heavy lifting itself. So it's delivering on the goals that we want as opposed to waiting for the government to fix it after the fact, kind of. And so that, that for me, I think is practically a way to sort of bridge this idea that is just a leftist thing. I think if, you know, if you're a fiscal conservative, you can see the logic for taking this kind of approach. If you're a social justice oriented person or environmental activist, you could see the logic for it equally as well. And then when it comes to sort of successes, I mean, I don't know, we did a mapping yesterday as a team, and it was a lot about, you know, who are we seeking to reach? And it always comes back down to people. Like, it's just like, ultimately, we can talk about organizations and governments and whatever, but it's always just the people who are within those particular institutions at the end of the day. And, and seeing the ways in which, I don't know, for me, like the feedback that we get about people being like, I feel like I'm found home. Yeah, like, I feel like I found my people and I'm not crazy. And this is really happening. And And wanting to bring that into all of these different spheres. So like seeing shifts in academia, for sure, in terms of the way that, you know, we're thinking about economics and business, seeing shifts in government and policy making, um, for sure around these things and development logic, um, within organizations, um, businesses. Like, I think, I think it is starting. It's yeah, it's systems change takes a long time. And I think that's part of it too. It, you know, it not something that happens overnight and you don't want it to honestly happen overnight yeah Yeah. because that's that's really disruptive yeah so it's always about just remembering also that it's like a marathon not a sprint and yeah we're in it yeah what about
2: you lisa yeah it's definitely also about people because as amanda says yes there are these examples of governments that are going a bit further and that are trying but for me personally where i get energy to keep doing this quite challenging long-term work is from people that we meet that come to us to be members and the big standout moment for me this year has been being part of the Beyond Growth conference that happened in the EU parliament in May not because the EU is like 100% committed to a well-being economy and it's going to happen because it's not a lot of the policymakers that spoke at that conference actually felt very out of sync with the mood in the room because they were saying a lot more of the sort of defence of the current system or green growth sort of ideas. Um, But the sheer energy and momentum of the 2,000 diverse people who took up space in the parliament that day, that's what inspired me that, look, I can actually look around our room and see our movement usually we're online all the time um, and we, we know there are all these people out there but we spend a lot of time on zoom boxes but to be to to take over a parliament um the european parliament with with two thousand people who really passionately believe in building a well-being economy and think it's possible and all have different ideas and knowledge to contribute to that it has definitely been the most inspiring thing for me this year i do a lot of work at eu level and with like other groups that are working at the eu and there are reasons to be optimistic policy-wise about the eu but that's not the thing that gets me really excited (laughs) keeps me motivated it's actually the belief in the people that are putting that pressure on and um and contributing the ideas and contributing solutions um and and you asked about businesses as well i think There are lots and lots of businesses out there that are proven that we can do business differently, but they exist in spite of the current system instead of because of it. Um, And here in Scotland, we've got quite a few of them. So I want to give a shout out to a couple of good ones because they deserve it. Um, The Ocrani Resort, which is my favourite place on the Isle of Arran, quite close to where I live on the West Coast of Scotland, is an employee-owned business that we profile in our uh, Business of Wellbeing Guide. um, That is an award-winning hotel a fantastic experience it's it's a really successful business that has totally embraced employee ownership as its model and um, is a is therefore a fantastic place to work and is not purely about profit generation and about being as big as possible it's also very much about serving the island community that it's part of and providing facilities and and employment and everything to to the rest of the island um so that's a great one and another one we have here in scotland is called locavore um which is a it's a shop and um food delivery service and everything that catherine always raves about too um but they, they have the explicit purpose of disrupting and changing the food system and um, that and they want to grow because they want to disrupt the system but they have like profit caps and wage caps and everything so that it's not about growing for the sake of having more money it's about growing for the sake of having more shops and more communities that are doing food retail differently so i, I think anywhere in the world you could find tons of examples of these but I, w- I just can't wait until we have a system that incentivizes them and makes it easier for them to exist and actively promotes them instead of them having to sort of fight in the margins um basically
0: I mean that is just a brilliant segue to my next question which was like where do you think we're headed because you guys have set a pretty bold and beautiful vision for a time frame of 2040 and that in you know by 2040 economics around the world deliver shared well-being for people and planet and that doesn't seem as far away as it once did you know like the 2020s are advancing How, how optimistic are you feeling? And what would that vision, how does, when you imagine that vision being realized, like, is there a feeling you get? Is there a sense of like, I would know we not had arrived, like it's a ding on the microwave and you're done and yay, you live in the well-being economic utopia that you were talking about before, Lisa. But Where where you could, yeah, you're not going against the grain, you're not pushing uphill or going against the the flow of the current to try to value these things. The system is working and supporting you to do that much in the way that right now we just go about our lives and a whole bunch of decisions are being made that support a whole bunch of things that we're not really thinking about or just existing. Do you reckon we can get there by 2040? And how would we know if we were kind of on track?
1: So... One of my favorite things with about we all is the fact that there is that sort of time-bound vision, um, which, because I worked in international development before, feels really important because so often, if you don't have that, it becomes about making yourself essential as opposed to somebody articulated once that, you know, we all is here to catalyze, not micromanage, right? <laughs> the transformation. I love that. And I really appreciate that a lot, and I think it helps me to think about, you know, the economy itself is a process. So similarly, a well-being economy is not really an end goal. It's a it's a system, right? Like it's a process. And so I see we all's role as being here to help to catalyze the type of like paradigm shift and the kind of collaborations and the the advocacy and and logic that is needed for that type of transformation um, at whatever level and and space makes the most sense. And so my hope is that we will sort of know when where our work is done by being able to feel like if we weren't here, this is gonna continue on just in the same way. Like I, and again, I don't, I would love to say we would know because all of the we all needs would be achieved, right? Like everybody would have enough dignity and fairness and like, you know, the um, environment would totally be healed and regenerated and all of these things. but. Even 20 years, I think, realistically, it will take longer than that. Um, But I think we can have the systems in place that are oriented towards that logic. Um, And, yeah, the hearts and minds pushing for it.
0: Lisa, did you want to add anything to that?
2: Yeah, I think for me... It's about trying to picture what's normal and what's common sense having shifted, like those those cultural norms having shifted. Like I've just talked about those two businesses that are like amazing and thriving, but they're sort of in spite of the system. And that's one way that businesses like that that have social and environmental purpose that are not profit-driven being the norm. Um, whatever format the news takes by then, I doubt we'll be watching it on TV, but when policymakers are being held to account by, by the media it's not them being hammered by questions about gdp and economic growth they'll be getting hammered with questions about well-being and planetary um health <laughs> and, yeah like, like those will be the things that we yeah. were the yeah so, totally. yeah and, and as a parent it's hard for me not to go ah my daughter will be 20 in 2040 um and i, I I want her to be in disbelief that we ever worked as much as we did, and that was ever there was ever the level of inequality that there was, and that that was just okay. Like I want, I want the things that she thinks are normal when she's twenty to feel so foreign from this that she's like, seriously, you left like that? Yeah, <laughs> that would be the way we crazy. look back at
0: the 1950s and we're like, what? Women had to quit their jobs when they got married, and they couldn't open bank accounts, and yeah, totally.
2: Yeah, although the way, like I always, I always use this example because it feels like it's changed really quickly. Um, it, it, like I'll say to my mum, like, did you really smoke in the office? Did you really smoke on planes? I, like uh, that's something that culturally was totally normal and that has completely shifted. So I, I, that's a good bellwether uh, for me as well. <laughs> Oh, gosh, that makes me want to cry as another mother
0: of a child that will be in their 20s in 20 years. Yeah, definitely. Um, So for people who are listening to this conversation and are just like feeling fired up and inspired and want to get involved, want to find out more, where do they need to go? How can they learn more? Um, What is like, is, is we all something that just anyone can join? Or do you have to be a member of like an institution or a government?
2: Lisa you can go to weall.org. There's lots of stuff to read on there Um, and anyone can join as a member, as an individual or as an organisation. If you're part of an organisation, it's free to join, but there's a bit of a process and like meeting you and um, letting you know the different ways to get engaged on a deeper level. Uh, Depending where you are in the world, there might be a local hub that you can get involved with, with people in your country or your community. Um, So you can find the map on our website at weall.org slash hubs um, that, that shows you that. But I guess the, the next step for a lot of people, if this is like a new idea to you, is like reading and listening and watching and just sort of absorbing, because there's so much out there in terms of well-being economy, thought and ideas. Um. So, yeah, we've talked about Catherine Trebek a lot. She has an amazing book called The Economics of Arrival um, that she kind of hates to plug herself. So I'll plug it for her. Um, <laughs> and there's loads of amazing thinkers and if you look at the ambassadors um, on our website and um, lots of them have written amazing books and um, too many to list but Tim Jackson, Professor Tim Jackson is, is one of my personal favorites and reading his work they inspired me um, and the book I always say that everyone should read that isn't so obviously like an economic book is in um, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer who's an indigenous scientist in North America um, but the way that she writes about how we live well together and um, our relationship with the planet and our relationship with each other is just the best possible articulation of what I think a well-being economy is and it's a beautiful read so that's my recommendation
0: thank you those are gorgeous thank you so much Amanda do you you want to add anything to that any personal recommendations or suggestions for people
1: Mm, yeah um I think that if folks are interested in some of the like global dimensions I really like Divide by Jason Hickel. I think it does a really good job of sort of looking at the relations between like global, like the minority and majority world and these sort of things in terms of the economic system. Um, I'm reading actually right now, and this is unrelated in some ways, but I think also related. And it's really good. It's called The War of Art. And it's funny and it's short and it's for anybody who is having some creative blocks. And it like sort of takes you through a process of just exploring those and unlocking them. And so. Yeah, I'd
0: recommend it to anybody who's... That's right. And I'm going to put in a plug because I know the Australian um, We All Hub is getting started. And so if you are listening to this in Australia and you're wondering, the Australian government has applied to join the We Go, which is the government group, but they have to be observers, right? Which I love. I love that you guys are like, no, you have to like watch and learn for a while. And then when you can prove to us you're doing stuff, we'll let you in the the club fully. But yes, the Australian Hub is getting going. There's going to be a landing page up pretty soon that people can get involved in if they want to find out more. Um, and then another podcast that we wanted to plug on this one, because it sounds pretty great related to art and related to we all that you guys are telling me about before we started recording, is going to be launching soon called Express Change. And that's all about art, making change and artists talking about this vision of a well-being economy. So we will link to that when it is up or keep looking for it if we publish before this goes live, because I think that sounds fantastic. I just want to thank both of you so much today. You have both been so wonderful to speak to, wise and inspiring and encouraging and human and real. And I just, it gives me like hope and courage. And I I feel like I'm that person who's like, I'm so on my table and I'm so crazy. Thank you. So thank you for being 10 million steps further along in this journey than I am and helping to kind of light the way with a lot of other people and a lot of other lanterns because I think it's what we need right now. And I just look forward to finding and supporting and learning more from you so thank you oh thank you so much
2: lily it's been an absolute pleasure yeah thank you i've loved this and um keep doing your amazing work and with the australian hub too because i can't wait to see that going from strength to strength
0: so much from that conversation that I wanted to try to distill down some key takeaway thoughts for all of us. The first is that I had never heard that the term economy didn't actually enter the public discourse until the Great Depression. And isn't it interesting that a hundred years later, we are using literally the same metrics for our success, even though the challenges and the crises we face now are different. It's time to pay attention to some different things. That the economy is actually just how we produce and provide for each other. So, shouldn't that always be evaluated through what it does for our well being rather than growth for its own sake? I love that the economy is not an autonomous self regulating force that exists out there somewhere. It is a system that we humans have designed to be biased in favor of. Certain goals, certain activities, and behaviors, so we can change those biases to be biased in favor of others. And that the pandemic was a real circuit breaker for some of that. And certainly that's what Australia Remade found in our own research that we did during that time. And people telling us that what they most want is to care and be cared for, connect, and contribute. So I'll link to that research for anyone who's curious. I love their focus on process and the lesson that the process always matters as much as the outcome. So for them, that's looking at, is it collaborative? Is it humble? Is it focused on the we? Because yes, there are vested interests who benefit from the current system. That doesn't mean we have to make our focus them or being anti them. I found it deeply reassuring that systems change takes a long time. And actually that's okay. We don't want it to happen overnight. But we do want to build a world where, say, those great businesses Lisa mentioned can operate because of the system we have instead of in spite of it. And finally, if you are working to catalyze transformation, you'll know you have succeeded not because every wrong has been righted or every goal delivered on, but because you have changed the context. <clears throat> You've created a new normal. It has enough grip and enough traction that the work will carry on beyond you. I love the idea that our children will look at some of the things we take as normal right now about our economy, how hard and how long we work or how much inequality there is or how we treat nature, and it will seem as absurd or surreal to them as smoking on airplanes. That is all for this episode. We will be back again soon. I look forward to hearing and sharing more conversations with you. Thank you for your support of this podcast and all of the ideas and networks and good work that we try to showcase. We will see you next time on Remakers. listening to the remakers i'm the host lily spencer and i record my part of these conversations from the beautiful guppy guppy country on the sunshine coast of queensland just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters and aboriginal culture 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on earth i also want to pay a shout out to our producer anna wilson to my colleague and sometimes co-host dr millie rooney You can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on the Remakers.